you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi church, come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When one of you has agreements against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Conflict among Christians dishonours God and disgraces the gospel almost more than anything else. And yet the resolution of conflict among Christians is one of the most powerful expressions of the gospel that brings God enormous glory. G'day City on the Hill West, it's Pastor Luke here with another message in 1 Corinthians. Today we're in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 1 to 8, which is in the middle of a section in the letter where Paul is really trying to help his readers understand what practical difference it is to trust Jesus and to follow him, what it actually changes in your everyday life. In Sunday's sermon, we saw how uh, it's different for Christians. It, being a Christian changes the way that we approach sex and the way we use our body. Our bodies are holy and important because we are holy. We reject sexual immorality because God has set us apart for him. And today we're going to see how being a Christian, being one of God's people, should change the way we think about conflict and our relationships. Uh, as we've seen, there was lots of conflict in the church at Corinth. This was a divided church. There were lots of factions. People were uh, chose who they most respected and they followed them and they made parties out of that. But today we're going to see that it wasn't just at the larger communal level. It was also at the day-to-day -day and one-to-one -one level. There were disputes between individual Christians, arguments in the pews, and not just mild disagreements. These were full-blown wars. I mean, People were taking their friends to court. Just imagine that. Someone in your gospel community and you take them to court. It's pretty messed up, but that's what was, what was happening in Corinth. And so today we're going to see how Paul addresses that. And he is just straight down the line on it. Verse 1, he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? I mean, how dare you go to court? Paul says. Indeed, he says in verse 5 that this is to their shame. You see, for Paul, uh, this reveals the deep issues in the Corinthian church. This exposes the fault lines about their whole understanding, their whole approach to Christianity. And I want to suggest today that uh, 
he sees them as forgetting three things, three key elements of their identity as God's people. First of all, they have forgotten who they are. Verse 1, Paul addresses them as saints. They are God's people, holy, sacred, set apart, called out from the wider culture. And yet their conflict and their uh, divisions show that they're really no different to anyone else. You see, we've seen in previous weeks that the city of Corinth was all about self-advancement, about getting ahead. And it was the same with their legal system. Uh, The writer Stephen Um, who's written a a fantastic commentary on 1 Corinthians, describes it like this. The legal system in Corinth was not used so much to seek justice as to establish one's status, honour and position in society. The courts were often used by the fortunate to tread upon the less than fortunate, and the court was a, a quick way to move up the ranks and to establish one's supremacy over another. And this is what's happening with the church. Uh, people are taking their brothers in Christ to, church, uh, to court, uh, to sue them and to get above them. Now, Paul just cannot understand this. Verse 6, how can it be, basically, he says, that brother goes to law against brother? They're treading upon another brother in Christ, as um, puts it. You see, they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten that they're God's people that these people are family, that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They've forgotten who they are. One of the great distinctives of the Christian church is love. You think about the church in Acts. Acts 2, they're sharing stuff with each other. They're caring for one another. This makes a real impact on the community around them. And, of course, that's exactly what Jesus hoped would happen. John 13, he says to his disciples, John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the sign of being a disciple, that you love and care for each other. But that's not happening in Corinth. Rather than uh, displaying God's glory, they're bringing disgrace and dishonor to him. There's nothing different. There's nothing distinctive about the church in Corinth. And so Paul makes this very sharp and telling conclusion in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You say, look, it doesn't matter who wins these court cases, you all lose because you've forgotten who you are and the family of God has been disgraced and dishonoured. Okay, so that's the first thing. They've forgotten who they are and they've also forgotten what they will do. In verse 2, Paul says something fascinating. He says uh, that, uh, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then in verse 3, he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Somehow, for some reason, God's people are going to be part of God's ultimate judgment. We will judge people and angels. Now, that's pretty fascinating, but it's actually something that Jesus hinted at as well. In Matthew 19, verse 28, we read, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He was speaking to the twelve disciples, but now this seems to be extended to all of God's people. Now, Paul doesn't go into more detail about what this looks like, what it involves, or even just why God would do this. But he makes the point that if this is our future, it should reshape our present. If this is what we will do, it should change what we do now. 
for a start, it should change who we look to for judgment. When we have some kind of dispute, it should change who we look to for wisdom. You see, uh, when it happened in Corinth, when there was some argument, they would look for outside judges, for secular judges. Paul calls these people unbelievers, verse 6, or those who have no standing in the church. And Paul's like, this doesn't make sense. Like, don't you realize that you're one day going to judge these judges of yours? Like, you have a higher authority than they do, so you don't need their wisdom. Uh, and then he says in verse 5, can it be that there's no one uh, among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Like, surely you should be able to sort this out on your own without these other people. Don't be looking to them for wisdom. And it should also change uh, when or what kinds of things we look uh, for outside judgment. You see, uh, God is going to give his people great and big responsibilities. They're, they're going to judge angels and the intricacies of eternity. Verse, and so verse 3, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? Now Paul says, look, these are trivial cases. These are small things. You're going to have much more important responsibilities later. So uh, deal with this stuff on your own. You should be able to sort this out. They've forgotten who they are and they've forgotten what they will do. And then thirdly, they've forgotten who they follow. I think that's Paul's point at the end of this passage. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. You see, Paul is is so against lawsuits that he actually says people should be willing to accept defeat. Uh, it's a defeat for the community to go to court. And so instead of doing that, people should rather suffer wrong and rather be defrauded. They should accept being hurt rather than take their case to court. And why? Because that's what Jesus did. They're remembering who they follow. Uh, that's what Jesus taught, Matthew 5, turn the other cheek. Or if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's what he taught. And it's also what he did. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Indeed, he prayed for his oppressors, Luke 23, 34, on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He suffered wrong. He was defrauded but he was still willing to forgive. And so as his followers, we should be willing to do the same. Now, this leaves us with a whole bunch of big questions. I mean, is Paul saying that we just, just always just have to put up with sin being done to us? Do we have to just let people just walk all over us? Or is he saying that there's never a time that we can go to court? Let's try and take those questions one by one. But... First of all, I don't think he's saying that we can never go to court. Uh, there's actually plenty of precedent in the Bible for uh, God's people going to court. Uh, in the Old Testament, the God's people, the nation of Israel, had a highly developed legal system. So there are times where that's very appropriate. In fact, I think there's times where we must go to court. Uh, think, for instance, about situations where a Christian is doing something clearly illegal. Paul says in his other letters and elsewhere that Christians are bound by the laws of the government, and so it's appropriate that we pursue that. In fact, it can be a disgrace for the church when we don't do that. 
Now think about the child sex abuse scandals where churches have been found to cover up things that are wrong. And so I think there are times when a Christian can take someone else in the church to court. You might, for instance, need to get a restraining order against someone who's acting inappropriately towards you uh, or consider a case of domestic abuse. It's, it's right and good uh, for us to pursue that and to do something about that. There are clear cases then when we can and even should take people to court within the church. The problem in Corinth, though, was that they were too willing to do this. They were hungry for it. They were eager for it. That's what Paul is writing against. Uh, But he also still wants them to deal with the problem of conflict properly. You see, the other question we might be asking is, does this mean that we just ignore sin? Do we just kind of let it all wash over us and we just don't make fuss? You know, we keep the peace at the cost of, uh, of what is right. I don't think Paul is saying that at all. Uh, I mean, it's clear that he's not ignoring sin right here. I mean, he's confronting sin in this very passage. He's not afraid to do that. And then if you look at the passage that we heard read on Sunday, 1 Corinthians 5, he's even stronger. He says, look, if there's someone in the church who says they're a Christian, but they're doing all kinds of wrong things, they're an idolater or they're a drunkard or they're, they're guilty of sexual immorality or greed, don't even eat with a person like that. That's how you should approach their sin. And then he says in verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12, is it not those who those inside the church whom you are to judge? Like we're actually supposed to judge people within the church. We're not supposed to judge the outsider, he says, but we are supposed to judge the insider. We're supposed to confront sin and do something about that. In, in fact, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. So he's very clear that we should do something about sin in the community. Uh, Jesus gave very clear instructions of how to do this in Matthew 18. So we never just ignore stuff, but we do it in a different way. We do it with a different attitude. Stephen Um writes, The Christian community takes sin seriously, but handles it graciously. This means that we never pass over wrongdoing in our midst, but we also do not crush people for wrong that they've done. You see, when the Corinthians saw sin in their brothers, they saw an opportunity. They saw a chance to get ahead. It wasn't about righting wrongs. It was about asserting themselves, even if it cost others. If they were hurt, they saw a chance to punish. They weren't pursuing justice. They were looking for vengeance and for the thrill of self-righteousness But that's not how God's people should be. So Paul says, you need to look to forgive. You need to pursue peace. Confront sin, yes, but always with the desire and the willingness to do whatever is possible, whatever is needed to forgive and to make peace. Stephen Arm once more, this is what forgiveness is. Either we're going to reject that person and make him pay, or we're going to forgive and we are going to pay. Those are the only two options we have. We will either make that person pay or we can forgive him. That's the call here. That's what he says when he says, accept being wronged, accept taking on the load, the difficulty of forgiveness, of dealing with their sin. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did for us. He took the hurt on himself.
It wasn't easy. I mean, just think about that moment on the cross where he's praying for those, Father, forgive them. It's his death that would make forgiveness possible. For that prayer to be answered, for Jesus's prayer to be answered, he had to suffer. He had to make it possible. So forgiveness does cost something, but he was willing to pay it for us. It's not that he ignored our sin. He's confronted us with it, but he takes on the pain of making forgiveness possible. He makes peace through his blood. And now he invites us to be like that, to follow him. Not just to keep peace by ignoring sin, but to make peace by dealing with it. And as we follow him, we'll find the strength to do that. When we see what God has done for us, it starts to change us. It starts to give us the desire and the ability to forgive, to absorb what others do, and to show them forgiveness. And as we do that, we bring grace into the world. We start to express the gospel. You see, our world lives in conflict. Uh, just up the road from my house, there's a school, and pre-corona, I would walk past it in the morning, about 8.45 often, and there was this always, always a little group of mothers just outside, a little gang, a posse. In fact, uh, I know someone who works at the school and this group of women, apparently known as the Westgrove Mafia. So there you go. Anyway, I'm a bit of an eavesdropper. And so I just love listening to people's conversations. And, and often when I walk past these ladies, I'd notice that they were always talking about someone else, some person who'd annoyed them, they were angry about someone who had offended them, someone they were standing up to, someone they were refusing to surrender. They were going to fight them. They were in conflict with these people. And it's clear that their lives were defined by this. This was the thing that made their life interesting. It was something to talk about. There was always some kind of fight going on in their life. In a sense, they're kind of addicted to it. It gives them some drama, something to be excited about. It gives them a cause to pursue, a purpose for life. It gives a kind of shape to how they live. But it also destroys them, doesn't it? You see, conflict is something that we're all fascinated by. It's in every TV show, it's everything. We're fascinated by conflict. And yet it, it also creates an environment that's kind of jagged and harsh, a place where you can't stuff up because the cost is too high, a world where you can't be sure of yourself or where one mistake might cost you a friendship or an opportunity or a possibility and it's not just your mistake. Someone else might wrong you and you don't know how you're going to forgive them. You don't know how to get past that. You might lose a friend that you cared about because you can't work out how to forgive them. But we can show a different way of living. As God's people, as we experience God's forgiveness, we can express that. We can bring grace into the world. And when the world sees Christians resolve conflict, they get to see the gospel. They get to see what it looks like when, when someone confesses wrong, when someone is forgiven. They get to see conviction, repentance, faith, grace, God's love. See, there's always going to be conflict. In a fallen world, humans are sinful and selfish. 
So we'll always find a way to annoy each other, to offend each other. But in the gospel, we find the tools to resolve that conflict. We experience God's forgiveness and then we express that to others. We follow the one who forgave us. Conflict among Christians dishonors God and disgraces the gospel almost more than anything else. But the resolution of conflict among Christians is one of the most beautiful and powerful expressions of the gospel that brings God immense glory. God bless you, I help. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.